Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On February 6, 2020, the Center hosted a conference titled Bureaucracy and Presidential Administration, where experts discussed issues of accountability and expertise in constitutional administration. As the title suggests, the conference was inspired in part by two famous studies of modern administration. James Q. Wilson's book, Bureaucracy, and Elena Kagan's article, Presidential Administration. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and the videos of those discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's keynote address by Jonathan Rausch, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Mr. Rausch discussed professionalism as a lost virtue in modern life and in modern administration. It's a very interesting talk. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Adam. Um, thanks to the Scalia Law School, the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. It's a mouthful of words, but what an important mouthful of words. And what a privilege to be picked to give this talk. I was a little surprised when I got the email from Adam because I said, I'm not a scholar of public administration. My training is as a journalist. I've covered Washington for many years, including the bureaucracies. And he said, well, you know, we want something a little bit different, a little bit broader, and maybe a little bit inexpert. I can guarantee you that. Um, but I can also guarantee you that there are people in this room who know more and have thought more about the subject that I'm discussing than I have. So I hope we'll have time for some um, some conversation, not just, you know, formulaic questions and answers afterward. Uh, Phil Howard, who's here in the room and just did the last panel, has written presciently um, in one of his books about the role of professionalism. And as you'll here, I'll draw significantly on the work of Yuval Levin, who I'm honored to have with us today. And just warnings to both of those people, if I get any difficult questions or comments, I will refer them to you. Um, on June 17th, 2017, President Trump directed his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to fire special counsel Robert Mueller. Instead, what Don McCann did was to pack up his belongings and prepare his letter of resignation, telling the White House chief of staff that the president had told him to, and I quote, do crazy shit. Trump backed off on that occasion, but about six months later, he ordered McCann through the White House staff secretary to create a file memo denying accurate news reports that Trump had in fact demanded Mueller's filing. Don McCann refused to create the false record. Finally in the Oval Office, once again, the president tried. He personally pressured McGahn to deny the true story about the effort to fire Mueller. McGahn again refused. Three other events ripped from recent headlines. An intelligence professional going through channels reports behavior by the president, which appears bizarre, alarming, and abusive, possibly even illegal. The president, the, the person does this at no small risk, and the impeachment of the president results. The president falsifies a hurricane forecast and forces the National Weather Service to repudiate its own forecasters 
Days later, the agency's inspector general announces an investigation, saying the events, quote, call into question the NWS's processes and scientific independence, and that the service, quote, must maintain standards of scientific integrity. The president alleges that the FBI had launched an improper investigation of his campaign. The Justice Department's professional inspector general conducts a detailed review and finds significant flaws in the investigation, but also repudiates the witch hunt story alleged by the president. I could go on. You see the pattern? I want to talk for the next few minutes about an underappreciated concept in American public life, professionalism. What does it mean? Why might it matter? What are the consequences of its denudation? How might we think about strengthening it? Should we choose to do so? I'm thinking about professionalism in a variety of contexts today, especially in connection with our systems of politics, of government, and of seeking truth. I want to focus your attention on it for the next few minutes because I'm worried about what has become often a kind of reflexive hostility, especially, though not only, in conservative circles, to the so-called administrative state, sometimes called the deep state, but perhaps more accurately thought of, to a large extent, as the professional state. The reigning spirit of our time, on both the left and the right, is a populism that's hostile to elites, including experts, technocrats, bureaucrats, The assumption is that decisions will be better if they're made either by the public or by actors most directly accountable to the public. And of course, there's some truth in that assumption. No one would deny the importance of subsidiarity and public input, but it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The bathwater in this case is elitism, at least elitism of a certain sort, and the baby is professionalism. And the point I want to leave you with is this. Professionalism is often the first line of defense against predatory elitism. Sometimes it is also the last and the only line of defense. That is why President Trump and cronies like Rudy Giuliani relentlessly menace, circumvent, and denigrate professionals in and out of government. It is why the president smears law enforcement professionals at the FBI as treasonous, evicts scientists from the, po- uh, from the policy process, calls his top military officers dopes and babies, excludes the relevant central command general from the president's decision to withdraw troops from Syria, insinuates that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is not a loyal American, and claims whether forecasters are out to get him, among other things. Lawyers, journalists, inspectors general, career civil servants, foreign service officers, intelligence personnel, Military officers, at many turns, professionals have stymied efforts to put the machinery of government at the disposal of the president's whims. Now is therefore, I think, an apt time to think a little harder about what professionals are and what they do. So, what is professionalism? I confess this kind of thinking is somewhat new to me. I don't have a clear, concise, and simple definition. I'm thinking around the issue, bracketing it with artillery file, fire to try to narrow it down. But I've had some important help because in thinking about the question, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from Yuval Levin of AEI, who, uh, as I said, I'm honored to have here today. In his new book, A Time to Build, 
a very deep and important book, which I think will guide conservative thinking for the next 10 or 20 years, or at least should. Yuval explores the role and meaning of institutions. Institutions, he says, can be forms, training and shaping people to work together for a larger goal. The military is a classic example. Or, on the other hand, they can be platforms, mere stages which individuals can exploit to get famous and to advertise their brands. He locates the collapse of trust in institutions and the resulting public sense of anime and disconnectedness in the conversion of many institutions from places where people are formed to places where people perform. Thus, a self-promoting CEO, for example, can become a self-promoting presidential candidate and then a self-promoting TV pundit, hopping from one stage to the next. Or indeed, they could just as easily move in the opposite direction. As institutions have shifted away from shaping us and toward displaying us, they lose efficacy and legitimacy, and therefore people naturally lose confidence in institutions. Um, no wonder institutions are losing stature across the board, with a few exceptions that prove the rule, like the military, which still molds individuals. Moreover, Yuval argues, institutions have been taken for granted for so long, yet neglected so generally in public discourse that we've lost even the vocabulary for talking about what it is they're supposed to be doing. We don't even realize what we're missing, although we acutely feel its absence. I want to suggest that something a little bit like that has gone on with professionalism. Many people think professionalism is mostly synonymous with elitism because many professionals are people with advanced degrees and high incomes. We imagine often that professionalism is about excluding others, a seemingly elitist practice. We imagine professionalism is synonymous with professional school or that professionalism is necessarily tied up with earning a professional living, often a highly paid professional living, doing something. But there's a big difference between professionals and elites. Elites are influential by dint of who they are and who they know. They are elite because they have social connections and powerful positions. Professionals are influential more by dint of what they know and what they do. Their status is contingent on their standing and on their behavior. So what's professionalism? As I said, I don't have a perfect, concise definition. But for the next few minutes, let's go with something like this. Professionalism implies commitment to standards and mastery of knowledge, which together define a concept of integrity in furtherance of a mission or an institution. That is to say, professionalism defines a right way of doing things and a connection to something larger than personal advancement. As Yuval says, professionalism, quote, tends to yield a strong internal ethos among practitioners. In uncertain situations, a professional asks himself, what should I do here, given my professional responsibilities? And his profession will generally have an answer to that question. As you've all noticed, professionals and institutions are closely linked and often overlap. Um, institutions and professions both 
organize individuals to accomplish missions. They seek to inculcate norms and guide behavior. They assemble and transmit knowledge across individuals and generations. They cultivate reputational capital over long spans of time. They draw and enforce boundaries between insiders and outsiders. And almost invariably, the gatekeepers and guardians of professionalism are institutions. Groups like the American Association of University Professors, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, and the American Society of Newspaper Editors promulgate ethical codes, set professional standards, issue credentials, conduct peer review, organize conferences and social events, provide continuing education, confer prizes and sanction or even sometimes expel bad actors. When Don McGahn was asked to violate legal ethics, he probably had a lot of thoughts going through his head, but I'm going to guess that among the things he was thinking about were his professional reputation and his law license. Does anyone remember, although Bill Clinton was not convicted and suffered no legal consequences of his behavior in office, does anyone remember the one sanction that he did receive? Right. He lost his law license, um, which he perceived as an acute humiliation, as indeed it was. So professionalism and institutionalism overlap in very important ways, but professionalism is a narrower category than institutionalism because many institutions cater to amateurs. In fact, amateurs are what they're for. Families, churches, volunteer groups, some kinds of unions are mostly made up of non-professionals. And the whole point of some of them, families, for example, is that they are not professionalized. At the same time, professionalism is also a broader category than institutionalism because we understand professionalism to be an individual trait, a personal characteristic, as well as an organizational trait. Professionalism is something we internalize. Every professional is in some sense a, micros a microcosmic institution, an institution of one, an institution in a sense personified. You don't need to be a member of a formal profession to display professionalism. We can say of a high school educated stonemason, she's a true professional and know exactly what's meant. When we praise the professionalism of a concrete pourer, a hair cutter, a clarinetist, we mean we rely on this person to approach her task according to accepted standards and with integrity toward the mission. In his paper for this conference, Joseph Postel, writing about the evolution of the U.S. civil service, takes note of an interesting distinction between merit and expertise. And professionalism overlaps with both of those things, but it also implies something different from either. A commitment to right versus wrong ways of doing things that transcends purely individual character and knowledge. When over the years I talked to interns and other young people about a career as a professional journalist or a professional anything, I've used an informal definition, which is this. A professional is someone who does the job to the highest standards even when she doesn't feel like it. This is the concert pianist who goes out and plays the best she possibly can, even though she would really rather be doing almost anything else. 
that evening. Often then a professional is someone who resists cutting corners to serve personal convenience or personal interest or the interest of someone else. And that brings me to the characteristic of professionalism I want to especially emphasize today, that it's not the same as elitism, not at all. In fact, historically, many exemplars of professionalism have not been elites and have been hated by elites. An important example is from politics. In his classic 1962 book, The Amateur Democrat, the political scientist James Q. Wilson, arguably the greatest political science of the last century, described the assault on democratic political machines, that's capital D, Democratic Party political machines in three cities by technocratic reformers. The machines, he noticed, were run by political professionals, you know, people like committee men and ward healers and the like who were usually drawn from the non-professional classes. They viewed politics as a trade, and they tended to be in it for the long term, looking for, as he put it, extrinsic rewards. Things like jobs, pork barrel goodies, promotion through the ranks. As Wilson wrote, their rewards were power, income, status, or the fun of the game. Wilson watched with misgivings as what he called political amateurs attacked and ultimately dismantled the machines. By amateurs, he meant people who usually come from the highly educated classes and whose commitments were ideological and idealistic. They viewed politics as a hobby or a crusade, and they tended to have other day jobs. He wrote, an amateur is one who finds politics intrinsically interesting because it expresses a conception of the public interest. The amateur asserts that principles rather than interests ought to be both the end and the motive of political action. Issues ought to be settled on their merits. Compromises by which an issue is settled other than on its merits are sometimes necessary for the amateur, but they are never desirable. Because for the amateur, amateur compromise betrays principle, Wilson wrote, here quoting, each battle is a crisis a win or a loss for the cause. Well, because amateurs characteristically organize their political activities around issues, they will often, if necessary, manufacture issues to organize around. They will even manufacture crises to organize around, to build solidarity, to advance their cause. And whereas professionals tend by the nature of things to stick around, to be around for the long haul, Amateurs tend to be people like Tom Steyer or Andrew Yang, who swoop in on self-appointed missions of political salvation. Uh, George Washington Plunkett, and if you know that name, I guess most most people in this room will. George Washington Plunkett, the so-called sage of Tammany Hall, political professional par excellence, in the sense that he is the only person known to have simultaneously uh, drawn four public salaries while holding three public jobs and bragging about it. Um, Plunkett famously denigrated professional reformers as morning glories who look lovely in the morning and wither up in a short time. He understood himself and other Tammany pros as being not elites, but anti-elites. And they were right. The machine was famous for welcoming working class and lower class immigrants at the docks, schooling them in politics, of course, letting them know who they had to thank and who they were going to vote for, and then promoting the most loyal and capable 
through the machine hierarchy. The progressives of 100 years ago loathed Tammany precisely because it empowered the unwashed, especially the despised Irish. They proposed reforms favoring the educated and reducing participation, and they even tried at one point to legally disenfranchise working-class voters in New York State with the support of the New York Times, Business Interests, and Theodore Roosevelt. Now, I'm not calling for a return to Tammany, which isn't possible or desirable, but consider. For most of American history, the political parties were organizations which shaped and tested political aspirants and promoted them through the ranks if they were found meritorious. The parties were forms in Yuval's sense. Today, they are more like platforms in Yuval's sense, which political aspirants and outside groups exploit for self-promotion or use as vehicles for personal advancement. The consequences of that change have been far-reaching and profound. Until about 10 years ago, it was taken for granted in American politics that party professionals would have major influence on who reaches the party's ballot for president, Congress, and other offices. That influence was exerted first through direct control of nominations until the early 70s, and then after that, still through indirect control in what was called the invisible primary, in which party insiders directed endorsement, money, and media coverage toward preferred candidates. Whereas, flash forward 2016, professionals in the Republican Party were helpless to prevent someone who is not by any meaningful standard a Republican from seizing the nomination, and then, of course, seizing the party, and then, of course, seizing the presidency. In 2016, professionals in the Democratic Party were able to prevent someone who was not by any meaningful standard a Democrat from seizing the party's nominations, but not easily. It was a close-run thing. In 2020, Democratic Party professionals were helpless to prevent a billionaire dilettante from literally buying his way onto a national debate stage, or for that matter, to prevent a celebrity lifestyle guru and publicity-hungry Silicon Valley writer from joining the debate. And at this moment, of course, they are now struggling mighty with what to do about that same uh, insurgent who is still not in any meaningful sense a Democrat. What we see today is a degree of amateurization in politics, which Professor Wilson, I think, could not have imagined and which would have seemed unthinkable to political professionals as recently as a generation ago. The parties, or at least the Democratic Party, are are pushing back and seeking to reclaim some of their prerogatives, but they're up against the fact that the term political professional has become a term of abuse in many circles. For a lot of the public, amateurism is a mark of authenticity, and professionalism is a mark of corruption. It's a dangerous trend. With the political scientist Ray LaRaja, I've argued that without professional input and guidance, the primary system is easily manipulated by factional, self-promoting, and even sociopathic candidates equipped with personal wealth or celebrity or demagogic skill or all of the above. Ray and I are not against primaries, but we do point out that professionals and voters, like air traffic controllers and airline passengers, have different jobs, and both jobs are essential. As we wrote in The Atlantic recently, 
Political professionals, insiders such as county and state party chairs, elected officials such as governors and legislative leaders are uniquely positioned to evaluate whether contenders have the skills, connections, and sense of responsibility to govern capably. Only they can do the brokering and bridge building to form majorities and shape coalitions and to ensure that the nominee is acceptable to a broad cross-section of party factions. Only they can reduce the element of sheer randomness that plagues today's primaries. We and Elaine Kmark and others have proposed fistfuls of changes re-empowering professionals in various ways, which I'll save for another day. Regardless of specifics, though, let's not forget that the Constitution was the brainchild of a political professional, James Madison, who learned politics the hard way. Apparently, one of the reasons he was not reelected after his first term in Congress as a young man was his refusal to serve alcohol at the polling place, a mistake a professional would not have made. Um, let us also remember that Madison's constitutional system entrusts almost all governmental decision-making to political professionals. And let's not forget, for that matter, James Q. Wilson's warning about amateurization in the amateur Democrat in 1961, around the time I was being born, yet sounds so prescient today. Wilson writes this, the need to employ issues as incentives and to distinguish one's party from the opposition along policy lines will mean that political conflict will be intensified, social cleavages will be exaggerated, party leaders will tend to be men skilled in the rhetorical arts, and the party's ability to produce agreement by trading issue-free resources will be produced. All of that has come to pass. The system is designed to combine professional and popular elements, and it won't work without both. A second area where I've been thinking a lot about professionalism is in the epistemic realm, the world of truth-seeking, the world in which I am a professional. As a society, how do we distinguish truth from falsehood or at least error? How do we create what we call objective knowledge? For many centuries, the answer was more or less a dominant class of priests or princes decides what's true, and if they disagree, there's a war. The result was that knowledge advanced very little, and religious and creedal conflicts raged across Europe for many centuries. What changed? Obviously, that's a long story, but I'll cut to the chase. What we think of as the scientific revolution was essentially the delegation of objectivity to a network of professionals whose job is to test propositions by systematically hunting for error. People what I call, and what I call the reality-based community, um, thanks Carl Rowe, wherever you are, today include professional scientists and scholars, obviously, but they're not limited to scholars and professional scientists. They also include everyone who is committed to a professional ethos holding themselves and each other accountable for getting things right. Scientists can't fabricate data and they subject their theories to rigorous checking. Journalists cannot make stuff up and subject their stories to editing and fact-checking. Lawyers cannot invent evidence, and they subject their briefs to adversarial and judicial scrutiny. Intelligence professionals can't fabricate evidence, 
and they subject their assessments to red team review. Notice here one of the things that these professionals all have in common, peer review. They're forced to submit their work to the oversight of others in their profession. They also have all of these knowledge professionals and indeed other professionals have other things in common. For instance, they're often wrong in their beliefs, but they're expected to learn why they were wrong and then accept corrections. They may naturally believe they're right, as we all do, but they embrace the professional ethos of criticism and accountability. They think of themselves as seeking truths that are larger than themselves, even if their personal interests or their personal preferences are disfavored by whatever it is that turns out to be true. They tend to spend years of training to master their specialties. They become deeply imprinted through that training with processes and standards that define their professions. Elements like peer review and fact-checking and stare decisis and confidence assessments. Above all, they believe they serve a higher calling than merely expressing themselves or pursuing their personal interests. And with years of inculcation and reinforcement, professionalism becomes a matter of personal identity, not just a choice or even just a habit. Professionalism teaches us what we mean by integrity. I was trained as a journalist. I started in a newsroom in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was drummed into me there that accuracy matters, that journalists serve our community and the public rather than ourselves, that off-record sourcing is suspect, that multiple sourcing is desirable, that I should seek comment from anyone that I write about, that I should correct my inaccuracies, that my opinion doesn't belong in my reporting, and on and on. Those norms became my identity. They shaped my notion of integrity. And because I still adhere to them, to this day, I identify as a professional journalist. Now, obviously, not all of us lives up to all our professional ideals every day. But you'll find them in art articulated in the professional codes of mainstream journalism and taught in every professional journalism school in the country and promulgated in the everyday conduct of mainstream newsrooms. Just a couple months ago, I talked to a young reporter at a small town newspaper about his training and his environment. And he told me, if you have a very small staff, checking what somebody said with a bunch of different sources is not always doable. But those principles are at the forefront of what we do every day. They're in the conversations we have about things we're working on. Epistemic professionals think of themselves, I should say ourselves, as gatekeepers and guardians of truth. And although that may sound presumptuous, pompous, and elitist, it is in fact true. Professionals are the gatekeepers and guardians of truth, a job which, like air traffic control and vetting candidates, is a job that only professionals can do, of course, with non-professional assistance and partnership. Not because professionals are always right, but because they are accountable for being wrong. Because professionalism is characterized by boundaries between right and wrong ways of doing things, professionals define our integrity in large measure by the conduct we disallow. 
Our professional identities manifest in what we do, of course, but even more perhaps in what we do not do and what we try not to allow others to do. A conscientious accountant does not allow a CEO to cook the books. A conscientious lawyer does not allow her client to break the law. A conscientious intelligence analyst does not spin her findings politically. A conscientious scientist does not monkey with data. After President Trump doctored the weather report during Hurricane Dorian, senior NOAA officials seemed to back the president because the White House ordered them to. The agency's acting chief scientist, however, called the uh, official statement very concerning and said, quote, I am pursuing the potential violations of our NOAA administrative order on scientific integrity. That, my friends, is how indignant professionals sound. Or sometimes they just say the president is trying to do crazy shit. Professionals are the first and often only line of defense against vandalistic and predatory elites who seek to abuse or circumvent institutional safeguards. That is why demagogic populism is, among other things, fundamentally a war on professionalism. That is why devaluing and corrupting and circumventing professionalism is a profound danger to our democracy. That's especially true right now when we have a president who is battering every norm of professional government. The ethos of the president is in every way the opposite of professionalism. He makes the rules. Integrity means service to him. As he says, I have Article 2, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. His theory of the presidency is, try to stop me. When people say, as Harvard Law professor Jack Goldsmith recently told Bill Kristol in an interview, the institutional norms at places like the FBI and the Justice Department are holding up pretty well against Trump's battering. What they mean, I think, is that professionalism is holding up pretty well. We all need to be clear in our own minds about how much we depend on professionals and about the costs of circumventing and denigrating them. There's one more instance of professionalism and its devaluation I want to think about today uh, may be perhaps especially relevant to the topics of this conference, and that's Congress. In the mid-1980s, I cut my teeth covering the congressional budget process. I got to know staff directors and economists and analysts at places like the budget committees and the CBOs and the Joint Committee on Taxation um, and the Finance Committee and so forth. Most considered themselves professionals. They were tasked with different versions of the same job, providing information and expertise to keep Congress within bounds of reality and law. I was especially fascinated and impressed with the professional culture of the House Appropriations Committee. So that committee, which was much more powerful in those days than at present, was run very non-transparently by one Jamie L. Witten. Raise your hand if you've heard of Jamie L. Witten. Few of you have. His name is on the Agriculture Department building because he was known as the permanent sector secretary of agriculture for pouring pork into the sector. And it was also run by the so-called College of Cardinals, the 12 powerful subcommittee chairman uh, under, uh, under Witten, the Appropriations Committee subcommittee chairman. And yes, all of them in those days were men. 
the committee was staffed by a clique of often secretive professionals who had worked there for years, often in fact decades. The appropriators and their staff were almost like a priesthood. They weren't always fair or transparent, believe me, but they passed the annual spending bills on time every year because that was their job. Then a couple of important things happened. First, the Gingrich Revolution in the mid-1990s reduced the House's professional and support staffs by a third and the Senate's by 16% and abolished Congress's internal technology think tank, among other things. Committee-based professionals like Whitten were stripped of much of their discretion by leaders who imposed decisions from above. The result is a denudation of professional capacity and intellectual capital in Congress that has been aptly called Congress's big lobotomy. Second, the nature of the job changed. Candidates and voters increasingly saw Congress as a place to promote political ideas and personal brands. They saw it as a place to get famous, not a place to spend decades learning to legislate and working your way up to a committee chair. As Yuval Levin writes, simply put, many members of Congress have come to understand themselves most fundamentally as players in a larger cultural ecosystem, the point of which is not legislating or governing, but rather a kind of performative outrage for a partisan audience. Members, he writes, do not become socialized to work together. They act like outsiders commenting on Congress rather than like insiders participating in it. As a result, there's now a whole generation of people both in and out of Congress who have no experience of Congress as a functional, professional legislative body. They don't know much about the exacting processes of drafting legislation, building coalitions, amassing political credit, trading political favors, buying off political opponents, jobs which the Constitution assumes that Congress will do and jobs which, in fact, only Congress can do. Like many of you, I would love to see Congress go back to doing its job. I would love to see it rebuild its professional capacity and its legislative chops. I share the sense of dismay that I suspect many of you people feel and, uh, at Congress's relinquishment of its powers to the executive branch, the courts, and the independent uh, agencies. But I am not sure that Congress, as currently constituted, is actually capable of dependably exercising those powers. By contrast, the administrative bureaucracy remains a relatively professionalized organization. Is it flawed in many ways? Of course. Does it often lack accountability and responsiveness? Obviously. Is it performing duties which, in a better world, Congress would perform? Of course, for sure. But to assume that Congress would step in and do its job if we took a weed whacker to the administrative state is, I fear, naive. Instead, the White House and the courts would probably become even more assertive and even more arbitrarily powerful. The answer instead has to lie in the hard work of rebuilding the legislative branch's legislative professionalism. What's even harder, but even more important, is to rebuild public esteem for professionalism in politics and government. That is, make terms like career politician and bureaucrat less of a dirty word and make inexperienced and amateur less synonymous with authentic and uncorrupt. That is an uphill road. And I know the first hand that goes up for the conversation will be, how do we do it? 
It's a complicated question. And like many of you, I'm only starting to think about the answers. But we can also, to some extent, start in this room. As we discuss the flaws and excesses of the administrative state, let's also remember that professionalism is the baby and not the bathwater. And that denuding and corrupting professionalism is easy, whereas building and sustaining it is hard. And that on the far side of professionalism, beyond its boundaries, lie chaos, corruption, and predation. The professionalism of the American civil service remains a marvel by historical and world standards, and it has never been more important than today. Thank you for the opportunity to present those ideas. Uh, we have some time for conversation, starting with Adam. Will, please. Jonathan, among, among the differences between, say, President Trump and the professionals in an agency is that he was elected and they weren't. Same as when President Obama found himself disagreeing, say, with professionals in the Pentagon over, over some you know, strategy, he was elected, they weren't. So how can professionalism help to improve the way, say, in government agencies do their work without also sort of claiming the responsibility for deciding the policies that, the, uh, that they will actually pursue? Um, so that would be a great question to know your answer to. Um, my answer is that I'm not a populist and that, in fact, professionals and professionalism should inflect, inflect policy decisions. Um, like Madison, uh, as, I've, as I've mentioned, I think you need both professional input and popular input, and it should not be the case that anything the president says goes. So I actually don't have a problem with constrained and accountable professionals um, weighing in on policy. And in some cases, being able to constrain what a president wants to do. And I think we see reasons for that right now. But I grant that in America today, um, having an elected mandate is seen as, as we've now seen in the Senate just yesterday, is seen as, forgive the expression, trumping all other claims to authority. Am I, am I picking? I'm picking. All right, well, let's, okay. So where's the mic? We've got one here, one there. Why don't we start at the far end? Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm David Wagner, now at the EEOC. I was on the Hill during the Gingrich Revolution. I, I was, I'm wondering whether the... Were you staff? Uh, yes, I was committee staff on the foreign... foreign, foreign I'm trying to think, Newt has had its own, had its, its, own rena its own renaming. I think it had been the International Relations Committee, changed to Foreign Relations Committee, and now it's changed back. Um, he, uh, uh, do you think that the demise of the traditional committee chairmanship system, which gave an incentive for legislators to work, to develop expertise and work their way up, uh, in favor of term limits in committee chairmanships, whereby everybody will get a whack at it for a couple of Congresses if they just wait long enough, is that contributing to the problems that you see in Congress now? Maybe I should start a new a new trend today. And after taking a crack at everybody's questions, because you guys are so expert in the room, then I should ask you what you think is the answer to your question. Because I'd love to know what you think of that. Um, yeah, my view is is that that pretty obviously uh, deprofessionalizing 
uh, the committees and constraining those pathways to dual power. First, it reduces expertise because you have frequent rotation of personnel and staff, which means you don't have people who've been around as long. And that's just not knowing the facts and the policies. That's also knowing uh, where the levers of power are and building um, political capital. Congress is really a favor bank. That's what it fundamentally is. It's like you amass and spend political capital. That's much harder to do if you've only been around the short term. So yeah, I think that was a problem. I think it's perhaps more a symptom than the ultimate problem. It's a reflection of the distrust of professionalization. And I'll also concede that some of those posts were in fact abused. Um, so in some cases, there wasn't a good enough job of keeping tabs on, on professionals. So what do you think is the answer to your question? Okay. Without giving a speech. Well, uh, right. And, and giving due credit, because I haven't really thought of it in these terms since you spoke about it. But yeah, I think there we need to uh, probably need to recover the old uh, chairmanship system. Uh, I have never, after, well, after a first flush of enthusiasm, I never agreed with most of my movement on term limits. Uh, term limits do do nothing but empower staff, unless you term limit staff too, and then in that case you have amateurs at all. Well, levels. And, that, and, and then that case, the power tends to flow to the special interests, who exactly. Large amounts of money and expertise, agency and capture write, out the wazoo, write, and then so, they write the bills. Yeah. 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 So, so um, let's move to another. Yeah. Uh, one, one more. All right. I'm going to look. Anybody? Oh, I've got to go with Paul. One of the world's leading experts on this very question is sitting no, I just five feet from me. How, this is, are, are you going to bring back pork? Yes. That's crucial, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I've been a fan of earmarks for a long time. I was not a fan of the way they were administered when they got out of control in the Tom DeLay period. But then they were actually reformed, and for a couple of years they were working quite well as a kind of congressional grant program. Mm -hmm in which, you know, they were transparent. You had to apply for earmarks. Um, most of them were vetted, actually, by the, by the administrative agencies. But there were a way for Congress to say to particular constituencies or uh, claims, we're moving this to the front of the line. And favor trading was a good way to, to get complicated, uh, difficult um, bills through, including, by the way, spending reductions. It's really hard to cut an entitlement program if you can't give an earmark or another benefit to someone who votes for it. So, yeah, and there are, in fact, as, as some of you, we have experts in the room. I see Phil Wallach is here, among others, who know that there are movements now on Capitol Hill to begin restoring some of these forms of discretion um, and some of, these, um, uh, some of these ways that we can um, increase transactional capacity in, in Congress. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>